this week we uh, get to tackle one that's uh, quite close to home and uh, something that takes up a lot of my life. But the question is, why trust the Bible when it's full of contradictions and mistakes? Anybody heard that question before? Maybe uh, those of you who have come to faith in Christ here, that's been something that's been raised. And so why do you believe that, that this book and its claims should be trusted? And it makes some really big claims. If you've ever read it, you'll know that uh, the Bible does not punch lightly. <laughs> and I want to remind you what we wanted to do in this series. We want to do two things. The first is we want to help believers become thinkers. It's really important. You need to know, as Christians, we don't have a silly faith, which is just sentimental and based on feelings. No, no. Our faith rests on facts. It's very important you know that. And that we have a very strong reasoning case in the world for our belief. The second is we want to make thinkers into believers. And tonight, I really want to welcome you if you're a thinker and uh, someone's invited you here to come and engage with um, the series. The Christian faith is not afraid of thinkers. In actual fact, may I just say, it's produced some of the best in the world. And thinkers here tonight, we want to help you become believers. And a lot of the obstacles to faith is going, well, is this Christian faith really credible? Can I really trust what is being said? And tonight, we want to help you take one step closer to crossing the line of faith. So, uh, Sims is my co-pilot tonight. Could we have the next slide, please, Sims? That is me preaching my first or second sermon. Oh, my word. What the heck was I thinking? <laughs> anyway, I'm glad those days are over. <laughs> that's me as a student studying pharmacy, but I also served in my local church, something I recommend any student that's going next year to do, find a church, get stuck in and serve. I was worship leader, and I also got the opportunity to preach, and that's probably my first, I think it's my first preach. And... Um, can I say tonight, the question that we're dealing with, uh, last week I said I'm a pharmacist by, uh, by profession, so the science question was important, but this one's even closer to home because I'm also a minister, and so I studied four years theology, and so let me tell you what I'm speaking about tonight, we, I had to do for four years, it was the most boring thing ever of trying to look at all the, the historical dating of the text and all of that, and Kath's about to finish, eh? you got one more year to go, she can't wait, 5th of November, yes. Her celebration Sunday is going to be real. So um, today, I want you to know that this is something that I have pushed pause, actually put full stop on in my pharmacy career, because I felt God call me, and every week I have to deal with these scriptures. And can I say, as a thinker myself, if these scriptures did not hold together, or if they did not have some sort of coherence or historical accuracy, I would not be doing what I'm doing. So tonight... I want you to know that, that I'm going to try my best to fit in something that has been happening for centuries, criticism of Scripture. And there is volume upon volume. And I'll be honest tonight, I'm a bit dissatisfied with what I can produce. Because really, what can I cover in half an hour? And you know if it's half an hour, that probably means 40 minutes for me. But um, the problem tonight is you've got to know that uh, there is just so much information. And so I, I might seem cursory, but I want you to know that's not by... Uh, any uh, design, every statement I am making, I want you to know I can point you to credible sources for the, the, the statements and assertions that I'm making on Scripture tonight. And I'll be referring you to some references to help you in this journey. But I want you to know that um, this is one mighty task. But I don't want to start with the question of why I trust the Bible when it's full of contradictions and mistakes. Not. I want us to go back to last week. Could I have the next slide, please, Sims? And um, there were some big things we said last week that tie into this week. So just bear with me as I do a quick recap. We looked at this question, does science and evolution contradict Christianity? And we looked at the main scientific theory that claims to discuss or produce a rationale for the origin of life, and that was evolution. And we said last week, that on close scrutiny, only a supernatural event, a miracle of God, can explain the universe's existence. Evolution never claims to be able to explain the universe's existence, and evolution can't. That's the first thing you've got to know. Secondly is evolution and science can't explain if this dead matter just existed, how natural life came out of it, that it points to a designer. That's very important. 
Some hand was at work in bringing about life in this universe. And thirdly, science and evolution can't explain the encoding of the enormous amount of information. We said that the human genome is three billion letters long. That's just for one little cell in your body to survive. That's the amount of information it needs. And so scientists can't explain that. And not only, we said, is there evidence for a designer, but an intelligent designer. And can I just say, evolution cannot exist unless there is a God. I will be as blunt as that. Science cannot explain the evidence of this universe. It points to a supernatural event, and evolution cannot explain it away. So even if evolution is correct 100%, it still cannot explain away the existence of God. The next slide. And that left, led us to some big questions I want to just bring home again tonight. And that is this, that if there is an intelligent God behind the miracle of creation, and he designed your life, or he designed this creation, don't you think he has purpose and design for your life? If everything here on planet Earth is by purpose and design, don't you think you are? The second thing we said is, if this God is so intelligent, don't you think he can be communicated with? If we know God by what he's made, that one human being can have relationships with another, can communicate with another, don't you think that you can communicate with this God who made your brain? He's so intelligent that he could make the universe. And this is where I want to get to tonight. Don't you think then, logically speaking, if everything here is by purpose, and that this God who made it all by purpose can be communicated with, the most important thing in your life is getting to know him. If he's the one that put you here, if he's the one that placed you on this planet, and you're looking for answers and questions, shouldn't you go to the source of the one who put you here, right? That's where you're going to find life and the reason for being here. Not in creation, but the creator. And so this slide today, we said last week, next slide, thanks, Sims. Is we said then, how do we reconcile faith in an age of reason? And scientists themselves say science can only go to the point of the beginning of the universe. They can't go beyond because studying nature or the natural can't help you understand the supernatural. And in order for us to understand the supernatural, we need help to do so. And that help is called revelation. Are you still with me? Haven't lost you, right? And tonight, what we're talking about is the Bible being the revelation of God to the world. That without this book, you need to understand this claim, that without this book, we cannot know God or find Him or even find salvation in Him. And that is why this question today matters so much of how can we trust the Bible if it's full of contradictions and mistakes. It's because if the Bible cannot be trusted, then there can be no Christian faith. And that is why there has been such intense scrutiny. And can I say today, as a Christian, I welcome the scrutiny of the Word of God. Investigate it. Rip it apart. Because it is claiming to be that. It's God's very Word spoken over, can I just point out, 1,500 years by 40 different authors. And what this book is claiming is that if you will delve into and believe this revelation, that's what we call faith, submit ourselves to it, you will discover what it is offering, which is eternal life. Those are big claims, and they should be tested. And they have been for over 2,000 years. <laughs> and so I'll try to summarize this thing of, of the objections to Scripture being authentic. And I, I, I managed to narrow it down to seven. I'm going to do my best. There are more. But we want to know tonight with absolute certainty that what, whatever a person comes with, whether it's you're a Christian, you might say, well, this doesn't really tickle my funny bone. Well, you need to know what's out there about what are the objections to why people will not come to faith in Christ, particularly because of the Bible. But the second is for the thinker here today. I'm hoping to cover all of the major areas of concern for you. And if you have more questions, come chat to me afterwards, and I'll happily do my best to answer or refer you to some references. But I want to try and paint a picture of what's out there, all right? And what the Christian response is as a church, historically and scientifically. Okay, let's do objection one. The first one is, and you've heard it before, man, this Bible, it's just full of contradictions. Anyone heard that before? 
man, this Bible within it says one thing in one book and another in another book, how can its contents be credible? Because the stories seem to differ. And particularly this happens in the first four books of the Bible called the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you read those four books, there's some differences in the narrative. I won't go through all of them. One of them is, were there two angels at Jesus' grave or one? Were there two donkeys that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on or one? Here today, I'm going to look at one that's very simple. What was literally written above the, the head of Jesus when he was on the cross? What was on the sign? All four Gospels, as you can read, give different wording to what that sign says. And the argument is this. Is if the narratives contradict each other, how can they be true? So I want to explain it to you in the best example I could find in, in the book by Mark Mittelberg, which is outstanding. Tough questions, Christians hope no one will ask. He had a professor, and this professor, he had a, a friend that had a tragic moment in their life. It's a tragic story. It's a true story. His mom was waiting for a bus, and an oncoming bus hit her and killed her. And a close friend of the family reported this. A trusted uh, a witness said, this is what happened. But later on, the grandson of the, the, the lady who died said, no, no. She was in a collision with another car, and she was flung out of the car, and she was lying dead on the pavement. She died instantly. And it was really painful because this guy didn't quite know. There's two different stories about how this traumatic event occurred. Which one does he believe? And so what he did was he took both of those people, he got them in the same room, and he took their evidence and put it together. And this is the full picture of what happened in the story. The granny was waiting at the bus stop for a bus to come. An oncoming bus hit her. A car stopped and put her into the back seat to rush her to hospital, but in the haste was hit by an, another car, which flung the granny out the window, and she died. So tonight, I want to say to you with absolute confidence that little story is exactly what the New Testament particularly is like in the Gospels. There is not a single point in the story of the life of Jesus which cannot be harmonized. When you pull it all together, the story matches perfectly. And so let's go to the next slide. I'll give you an example with trying to solve the solution of the different accounts of the sign above Jesus' head on the cross. It may well be possible that the full sign is this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Notice it has all the wording in it. What's essential to see is that in every single account, the most important part, King of the Jews, that was Jesus' charge, is there. And that John himself says the sign was written in three languages. Now, Next slide, thanks, Sim. There is somebody who has written a book called The Bible, the big book of Bible difficulties. And these clever guys have looked at 800 objections or potential contradictions within Scripture and have answered all of them. Can I just say it again? 800. I'm ordering this book, Sims. I, I hope you know that. Yes. And I'm going to be, this book is what you can look at if you have any more questions on this. But I'm standing before you today saying that there is not a single contradiction in Scripture which cannot, when brought together, be explained. The next one is, objection number two, is that these guys who write the New Testament particularly, they lived so long after Jesus, how could they be correct? And this is a very popular theory. I don't know if you've ever watched the History Channel's documentary on the historical Jesus. Anybody heard of that? Or Discovery Channel? What they love to do is they like to look at this sort of... Uh, uh, arguments that these writers wrote much later in the life of Jesus, between two to 400 AD. Now, one of the most boring exercises as a theological student is you have to examine the evidence for dating. And can I say to you today, evidence is increasingly pointing to the fact that not a single book of the New Testament was written after AD 70. Now, how can I make that kind of assumption? You know what happened in AD 70? Roman soldiers came marching into Jerusalem and smashed the most precious place for the Jewish nation, their temple, absolutely eradicated it. Don't you think such a massive moment in the history of Judaism from which Christianity comes from would be reported in Scripture? It's nowhere to be found. More than that, what's fascinating is 
AD 70 means every single one of the New Testament writers either was a companion of Jesus directly, walked with him, talked with him, ate with him, or was approved by them. In other words, James, no, James and John were brothers of Jesus. How's that? Imagine your brother saying, you're the son of God. That's something special right there. But the other writers, like uh, I'm trying to think, the writer to the Hebrews, the writer of uh, Luke or Mark, they weren't necessarily apostles, but they were best friends with the guys who were. All of them knew Jesus personally. Now, I want to challenge you tonight. If you have not read the New Testament, would you do that? If you have questions, would you maybe just read the New Testament? And what you will find for yourself is this. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 9, Paul says, Jesus, this is our witness account, was revealed to Peter first, then to the 12 apostles, then to 500 people, eyewitnesses, many of which are still living today when Paul was writing. Acts says, Paul, when he's defending himself before King Agrippa, he says, King Agrippa, these things were not done in a corner. Investigate them for yourselves. Go look. 500 people have seen Jesus risen from the dead. His tomb was empty. We have seen him in the flesh. Come here. 500 people saying this Christ has resurrected. He was born, he lived, he died, and he rose again. Luke 1, verse 1 to 4, Luke says, Theophilus, I have investigated all these eyewitness accounts so that this book, the gospel of Luke, that you have, you might know your faith is resting on solid facts. Oh, I could go on. To Peter, Peter says, we have not followed cleverly devised myths. We touched Jesus. John put his head on his shoulder in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. He says, we have touched him. We felt him, the Son of God in the flesh. Don't you think those are profound claims? That if anybody could stand up and say, this is rubbish, they could have done it. Let me tell you, nobody did. Because these things are facts. And they lived within the first, in the lifespan of knowing Jesus. Those in the first generation, those who walked with Jesus. And then over and above that, guys, you've got to know, not just the Bible talks about this, but there are loads of outside sources to the Bible that have got no interest in defending the Christian faith that uphold its historicity. That's profound for me. Josephus, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, Tacitus, these guys attributed to the historicity of the New Testament, and they are profoundly accurate. And lastly, can I say, the most exciting for me at all, of all is this increasing evidence of archaeology. Do you know what the fascinating thing is? The more these guys dig, the more evidence points to the fact that everything in this New Testament is historical. The Old Testament is historical. The places, the names, the empires, it's amazing. Next objection is that this Bible has been copied so many times into so many translations that how can we really know what's in the original text? Anybody heard that one? That's, that's the big one. For me, this is the most exciting of all. Do you know that if you've got a Bible, or even on your phone, and it's a, it's, a, it's a well-known Bible, it's important that you know tonight that this Bible wasn't translated from, let's say, for instance, the Greek was translated into Latin, the Latin into German, German into Old English, into English, and now we get the English. No, no. These Bibles go back to the original languages and the earliest manuscripts. That's something special. Do you know that historical scholars can piece together 5,686 manuscripts within the first 400 years of Jesus' coming and dying on earth. That's not excluding the 20,000 other ones, 10,000 Latin, 10,000 other languages. In other words, the evidence to pull together the original handwritten text of what it says, it is the finest in the world. The closest is Homer's Iliad, which has how many manuscripts? 643. And the earliest manuscript is the 13th century AD. I'll do a quote. Next slide. Thanks, Sims. This guy says, the interval between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. And the last foundation for doubt, listen to that, the last foundation for doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. 
Next slide. I love this quote. I won't go into the Old Testament. It's an it's a, it's a ancient phenomenon of how accurate they were about the Jewish scribes. But I want to read the, the slide at the bottom of the, of the screen. It says here, with perhaps a dozen or 20 exceptions, that's how few errors or discrepancies there are in the text of every verse in the New Testament may be said to be so far settled by general consent of scholars that any dispute as to its readings must relate rather to the interpretation of the words than to any doubts respecting the words themselves. But in every one of Shakespeare's 37 plays, there are probably a hundred readings still in disputes, a large portion of which materially affect the meaning of the passages in which they occur. Shakespeare, written 300 years with the printing press, is less accurate than your New Testament Bible. Next objection. Oh, please read that book. If you love heavy reading and want to fall asleep quickly, it's just for you. Evidence that demands a verdict. I've got a copy. It's exhausting, but it's phenomenal. It will silence what you, any questions you have. Next one. The fourth is, man, this, this Bible's full of silly stories. Haven't you ever heard that? Noah and the ark. Jonah and the whale. <laughs> Splitting the Red Sea. Or Jesus walking on water. Man, it's a bunch of myths, and, and, and some of these myths are borrowed from other religions, other mythology. And this is Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. He loves to quote this. Have you ever heard of such a, an, a, uh, an oxymoron, no studying English, known as historical fiction? Historical fiction is a genre of literature. The two are impossible. How can it be historical if it's fiction? But anyway, I'm just pointing it out. Dan Brown, there's my rant for the night. The Da Vinci Code. These guys say, well, these guys have borrowed myths. And, and all that, there's no original thinking Christianity. It's just basically a hybrid religion. Well, don't you think it's interesting that those who are pointing the finger at the Christian faith, please forgive my tone, but I just want to point it out quickly to you, are the very people who cannot explain the existence of the universe. They're worried about a sea being split by a God who from a pinprick exploded the universe into being with his voice. Friends, tonight... These things of a, a, a local flood with Noah bringing animals into his ark, of having uh, Jesus walk on water, a whale swallow a human being, is nothing for a God who can form the universe. And Marilyn Foster Savant, she has the highest, I think it's a girl, I never know what the French people, but I think it's a lady. She is, has the highest recorded IQ in the history of the world. And it says, I think that if it had been a religion that first maintained the notion that all the matter in the entire universe had once been contained in an area smaller than the point of a pin, scientists probably would have laughed at the idea, except they're the ones who've named it and come to that conclusion. I love the next slide. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Guys, you've got to know that the God who the Bible proclaims is supernatural. And the funny thing is, there's been lots of attempts to try and pinpoint the God of the Bible to some resurrection cult called the God of Mithras or paganistic, Hellenistic uh, 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 mythology. Can I tell you, these guys, they are big hitters. Ronald Nash does the gospel in the Greeks. He says the tide of scholarly opinion has turned dramatically, Dan Brown, dramatically against attempts to make early Christianity dependent on the so-called dying and rising gods of Hellenistic paganism. And this professor, Montiero Williams, spent 42 years studying Sanskrit. And what this professor came to the conclusion was is there is a gulf between the Bible and the so-called sacred books of the text. He says, you put your Bible on the right hand side of your desk and load up all the Eastern texts on the left. That's how separate the Bible is to those documents. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Next slide. Objection number five is certain books have been deliberately excluded. Haven't you heard of this one? There's some mysterious conspiracy theories that, that the early church excluded some books which might have shed some light on some controversial aspects of Christianity. Any of you ever heard that? It's a popular one. That was the first question when I worked at Greenfield's Pharmacy and I went out to the Ridge. This girl who came to faith in Jesus now, she's serving, she actually helped me with the slides this morning at the Ridge. She came to me and said, certain books have been left out of the Bible. How can you say it's the Word of God? So, can I point you to the fact that 
every single book that has been put into this Bible was written within the first century AD, were either known by Jesus personally or by his close companions, carry the same orthodoxy and historicity that archaeology and all of the findings point to as being sound, and they do not contradict each other in terms of their statements or their teaching. This New Testament and these, this Old Testament hangs together perfectly. But then what about these other books? Any of you heard of the Apocrypha? And some of you might be familiar with those terms. Do yourself a favor. Read them. Can I just quickly tell you about what's in some of them? Okay. They are Gnostic writings. They are written much later in the first century AD. It's proven between the second to the fourth century AD. These writings came way after Jesus and said some crazy stuff about Jesus. Oh, man. In the book of Thomas... It's basically sayings of Jesus. Do you know he quotes Jesus saying, if you pray, you're sinning. If you're fasting, you're committing some sort of sin. If you give to the poor, you're sinning. If a human eats a lion, that lion becomes blessed because they become human. I think it says. But if, 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 a, if, a, if a lion eats a human, then it's, it's I, I can't even, I, I will get you the quote. It's, it's for me, it is so far from the New Testament that if anybody's read the New Testament and looks at the book of Thomas, they'll go, this is not the Jesus that's proclaimed in the scriptures. But the funniest one for me, uh, please uh, forgive me, I, I was having a good chuckle last night in the book of Tobit. It describes a guy called Tobias who has hot bird poop that falls in his eye and goes blind. That's what he, and he, as he's sleeping, this, this, this swallow's bird poop falls in his eyes and he goes into this trial, like the book of Job, it says, where he's blinded by hot bird poop. Now, do yourself a favor. There is nothing in these books that point to anything that make them qualify to be in the canon of Scripture. Sometimes 1st and 2nd Maccabees is used as some historical, and uh, uh, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, for instance, it described Paul with a beak nose and a this kind of bad eyesight. And they think that might be a historical account of the, Paul, of, of, of the Apostle Paul. But the bottom line is, these are fictitious, they're unhistorical and unorthodox, and they're written by Gnostics, which had a very different view of our faith. Um, as Christians. Next slide. Objection number six. How can we say the Bible is right and all the other books are wrong? Any of you ever heard that? This is the biggest one for us today as Christians. That is an intolerant, bigoted statement. That's what we told as Christians, is that the Bible is right and all the others are wrong. Can I firstly say tonight, if, if you're here and, and, and you, if you have some questions, this Christian faith is not just discrediting helpful advice from other religions. It's important. For instance, one of the examples given is Buddha says, do not do to others what you would have them not do. Do not do to others what you would not have them do to you. And then Jesus comes along and says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Is Jesus stealing Buddha's saying? Is there some sort of discreditation of, 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 of Buddha's entire teaching? There might be some good advice and good counsel from other religions. But the difference between the Bible and other religions is that the Bible will say, within it, it points to the only means of salvation. The Bible's not talking about good advice. The Bible is talking about how do we be reconciled to God who made us? How do we, as the human race, find and discover the way that God has opened up for us to know him. And there is only one way, the Bible says, and that's John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That is the statement of Scripture that makes it exclusive. Now, you might say, surely that's an intolerant view. Shouldn't we keep our minds open about other options to heaven? Well, can I maybe use an example? Let me use an example. What is the capital of the UK? Carla. London. Are you sure, Carla? Anybody here wants to dispute the fact that the capital of the UK is London? Anybody here? John. Are you sure you don't want to keep your mind open to something else? Why are you so, so certain? Facts. Evidence. Not so? is to say, when I say the Bible is offering, not offering good advice, but absolute truth, 
the reason why Christians say that, it's important you understand, it's not because we somehow feel this, it's because of fact, fact in history, that the Son of God lived, that he, he died, that he rose again, he was resurrected. The facts point to his uniqueness in comparison to any other human being that's ever walked. Can I point out to you tonight, when I read statements by Richard Dawkins, this atheist that's, that seems so self-confident, Bertrand Russell, these guys that have been mega giants in, the, in philosophy and atheism, I don't hear evidence, I hear scoffing. You know what scoffing is? Scoffing is when you ridicule something, you sneer at it, you go, oh, that's absolutely ridiculous. Not because of evidence, but because of some philosophical standpoint of saying, well, that can't be. It is fascinating for me tonight, and why we are doing this series is because those that have investigated the facts have gone to Jerusalem, investigated the historical and archaeological evidence, looking at Luke as a historian, looking at extra-biblical sources, they have come to the conclusion that the Christian faith is sound, and they themselves have become believers. Lee Strobel, do yourself, the case for Christ is about an atheistic journalist, and he goes and goes, he goes to disprove this thing. And when he finds it's real, what happens is based on evidence, he goes, this must be true, and he becomes a Christian. And he is one of dozens and dozens and dozens of recorded intellectual people that were atheistic, that were agnostic, that were doubting. They went and discovered the facts, and they came to the conclusion of faith. Can I point out, those that sit in their armchair of reasoning, of philosophy, and simply say, they just scoff. Bertrand Russell, I will say to you today, scholars have pointed out, they doubt he ever even read the New Testament. They doubt he even, reason, even looked at the evidence for the resurrection. These giants, they just scoffed. They just said, oh, well, that's just nonsense. That's ninny penny. Who believes in God? Who believes in this Bible? These Christians are just so uneducated and so unintellectual. They never examine the evidence. Can I say to you tonight, we believe the Bible is absolute truth, not only historically, but because of what it proclaims and proves through history. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, risen from the dead. And no other book in the history of the world, no other book in the history of the world, has the amount of prophecy that is already being fulfilled within our time. Time does not allow me to explain the incredible accuracy of this book in predicting four empires arising up from Daniel, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, predicting that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that he would go to Egypt, flee to Egypt, that he would come back to Nazareth, and this guy would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. They describe even his death in the Old Testament. All of these things, that he's from the tribe of David, all of these things, over 1,500 years have been carried forward with incredible accuracy. And to this day, there is no other book in the history of the world that has been proven correct in its prophecy. What are you going to do with that tonight? This is not the U magazine or the Vogue. This is something tested. I'm almost there. The final objection is, isn't it open to any form of interpretation? Haven't you heard this one? Your opinion is your opinion. How can you say scripture can be unpacked? Well, what about the cults? These crazy people that make people drink petrol and eat grass. It's terrible. Can I point out to you tonight, for a cult to survive, they have to alter the text of our Bible. I don't want to point out or, or cause any controversy, but if there's any Jehovah's Witnesses here tonight, you have a different translation, edited translation, to what the original manuscripts say. It's proven fact. If you're part of the Church of the Latter-day Saints, you have to add on an entire book called the Book of Mormon in order for it to survive. May I even say the Roman Catholic Church kept scripture from the common people even today, they will say that only the church can interpret scripture. But what set the world on fire was that when the average person could pick up the scriptures in their hand and read them for themselves, it turned the world upside down. 
It raised up civilization. It made nations that were noble. It created this whole thing of social welfare and changed the course of society and history. As men and women picked up the Bible for themselves, far from being loonies, they changed the world. And the, the most stable forms are those churches that preach the whole scripture. If you come after this series, you will hear us preaching soundly and with absolute integrity every single letter, every dot and comma of the scripture. Because I tell you why, the Bible in its central message is clear. It's far from being wacky or eating snakes or doing, they don't survive. They for a time pop up, but then they fall away. Why? Because anybody who thinks for themselves, can handle scripture for themselves, can read for themselves, understand that the central message of the scripture is so clear. It's so sound. Do you know, in this church, in this church, no one has caught blanche from the word of God. Even a member can come up to me and say, Matt, what are you saying? Prove it to me from the word of God. Far from throwing our minds away and saying, you just believe whatever this guy says from up front. We investigate, we test, we prove. Why? Because even the common person can understand its common message. And friends, we don't come to the text tonight changing it into our own image. You cannot read this Bible and not be changed by it. If you're coming with some hunger for God and you open up these Bible, these passages, what you will find is this, is suddenly, it's starting to explain what you really like. Far from being something loony and going, this is not a human being, it describes the human condition perfectly. It describes our failures, our longings. In the book of Ecclesiastes, if you ever want to read it, it explains the pursuit for life, for some sort of purpose. Man, this Bible unpacks not only the world correctly, but you and I correctly. And when the scriptures started speaking to the world, it starts to make sense. It's life-changing and life-giving. But the final objection which I want to deal with today, oh, that is it. Well done, Matt. Is I want to sum this up tonight. Can I say to you today, I know it might not prove to you the fact that this might be the revelation of God, but it will prove, I can prove to you from all of literature and studies that this book is historically sound. When you open it, it can be trusted in its content. Everything points to increasing confidence in this book called the Bible. It's heads and tails from any other book ever written. It stands alone in history as being the most trustworthy document in terms of accuracy and even in terms of historicity that, 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 that the world has produced. And if it is so trustworthy, let me tell you now, please hear me. This is where it kicks gears. It changes gears. If it is historical fact that Jesus was born, listen to me now. If you've been sleeping, you need to wake up. This is where you need to listen. I won't be offended. This has been a long, long night. If Jesus historically was born, historically died, historically rose from the dead, tonight you've got to ask yourself the question, where does that place you and Jesus? If he is the resurrected son of God, don't you think he's worthy of your notice? And if Jesus himself pointed to scripture, you know that Jesus never corrected it. He never said, let me clear up this contradiction. He honored the prophets as the prophets, the wisdom writings of the wisdom writings, the law as the law. He never upheld it. Instead, he lived underneath it, fulfilling it. Don't you think that there's something special in this thing called the Word of God? Mark Mittelberg, sorry, Sims, I just want to read that quote. Established extra-biblical sources in archaeology tell us the Bible is accurate and worth reading, but Jesus tells us it is spiritually accurate and worth heeding. That's the difference. That's the difference. And so I ask two simple questions tonight. Last slide. And I, I say this lovingly, but I, I have to ask the question. Most of the time, and with your friends, Christians, if they ask you about some issue they have with Scripture, most of the time, it's got nothing to do with whether the Bible is historically inaccurate or not. Most of the time, it's got to do with its message. And what people are really hoping is they can disprove the Bible, not because of inaccuracy, but because they want to be let off the hook by what it actually says. 
Mark Twain said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. And can I say today, I'll give you my short time as a pastor. Most of the time, when somebody has a dilemma with Scripture, it's because of a wrestling with its message, not, not with its authenticity. And maybe tonight, there's something in your life you don't want to believe the Bible in because it might cause you to change some things or give up something. And you're going, I don't like that. I don't like the fact that this thing speaks into my life that has authority over me. I want to do what I like. I want to do my own thing. It might mean I have to change some sort of aspect of my life or some habit or admit that actually I'm under authority. I get that. What you are experiencing is what every human being has to wrestle with in coming to faith in Christ. But may I point out, would you just do this for me tonight, if that's you? Will you read what it says? Let me tell you, what this Word of God promises is much more, much more than what you might be worried about giving up or having to change in your life. What the Scripture says, what it promises, it is eternal life, and not even just for the life to come, but in this life now. I don't have time to express the riches and treasures of faith in Christ. They are unsearchable, Paul says. And the scriptures just unpack the first almost antechamber, the first opening act of the glory of God's salvation. And let me tell you now, if you are willing, if you're willing to come to Christ tonight and say, Lord, okay, scripture, historically accurate, there's something special. I'm willing to come to you. I'm willing to lay down my life. I'm willing to submit and say, okay, Jesus, I'm choosing to believe in you and come under your authority for my life. Can I say to you now, you will never, ever, ever, ever come to a place in your life where you'll feel like you've lost out. <laughs> I don't have time to talk about my own journey. I had to make some tough decisions at varsity. At high school, about which way I was going to follow. I was a broken boy. I came from a broken background. I turned 33 this month. Let me tell you, I have not regretted a single moment of following Jesus. This word of God has been a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I say tonight, what's stopping you? What's stopping you? But I don't want to just end on, on being a bit tough on you tonight. I know you came to listen about some, this is shifted gears quite a bit. But I want to talk to the Christians here. Christians, if this is the word of God, if this is the inspired word of God, what are you doing with it? My concern is we're becoming a generation of illiterate Bible readers. WhatsApps replace it. Daily devotions replace it. Let me tell you, our heritage of faith has been men and women who have died for this book, have died to read it, have fasted for 40 days in order to get a copy, even just a page, have memorized this entire verses so that when their copies got taken from them, they could repeat Scripture from memory. If this is the Word of God revealed to us from heaven, it surely is the most important document in your life and mine. Theodore Roosevelt, the President of the United States, says, a man who studies the Bible goes further than any college degree. A man who understands that this is the Word of God, a woman that says, this is my mandate from heaven, encounters something that this world cannot offer. It is called eternal life. Not just some pie in the sky singing angels, ooh, la, la. No, no, this is heaven touching earth through Scripture. What are you doing with it? We neglect it to our peril. We have a world spiritually starving. We get served up with this menu daily. What are we doing with it? We will be called the greatest fools in the world for neglecting Scripture one day before the Lord. How you handle the, this book proves what you really believe about it. Let's pray.
Father, tonight, what a privilege to spend just 40 minutes looking at your word. It's not enough. It's not enough. This revelation from heaven, written over 1,500 years through 40 different authors, all following the greatest story of salvation ever portrayed. What an ancient faith. What a glorious, rock-solid foundation. Today, Lord, I pray, as we have confronted this issue of your word, God, we do it only because we believe that this is where life is found. Your word points to Christ, to you, to the maker, the one who put us here, the reason why we live. And I pray for courage, Lord, tonight. I pray for courage amongst Christians to be confident in the word of God, but also to be consistent. Lord, surely the greatest privilege is having your very words documented for us that we might enjoy the privileges of knowing you. And I pray tonight for those, and it happens, Lord, who've gotten weary, ill-disciplined, sloppy in the way that we've handled Scripture or even our desire to read it. I pray tonight for a new birth of desire and longing in us that would lead us into a new dimension of faith as believers. I pray, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, you would open our eyes afresh tonight that when we leave this place, we would have the mandate of heaven saying, this is my way, walk in it, in your words. I pray, Lord, that as we face these questions and fantastic conversation around whether the Scriptures are really your word, I pray as Christians we would have a renewed sense of confidence in the fact that these things have been tested, not yesterday, for centuries, and the overwhelming evidence is increasingly pointing to the fact that we can trust what is written. We praise you for that, Lord. Lord, tonight, I just want to thank you as well for anybody who's had the stomach to go through tonight. They've come with questions, Lord. I pray, I pray tonight, as the word is presented, Lord, I pray that they would have a fresh awakening to the awesomeness of this text. That, Lord, this is not just some guy sitting in some study spouting some nice thoughts. No, Lord, these were men who encountered you, touched you, heard you, saw you, felt you, experienced you, and their words were the very words of heaven proclaimed over hundreds of years. I pray tonight for anybody here who was skeptical. I pray tonight, Lord, would you stir them to read? Would you stir them to pick up these scriptures? And would you open them up to them, I pray? We're going to sing a song that is really powerful. It's a declaration of what we believe from the scriptures and what's happened in history. And uh, so, Lord, as we're going to stand, I'm going to ask us all to stand. I pray that, God, as we sing these words, you would speak to us. The worship team is going to lead us through the song, invite you to sing these words, Christians, with fresh confidence. For those of you who are skeptical, listen and have a look at what they say. For those of you who want to come chat afterwards, um, I'm going to come up on the stage and dismiss us after the song. But uh, come chat. I hope this is the start of a good conversation. Thank you. Our Father everlasting, be your creating one, God Almighty. Let's sing it to the Lord, church. Let's sing it to Him.
for tonight lord what an incredible declaration what an incredible statement father as we're going to leave for this place i ask for your blessing to be upon us pray for those that are engaging with you lord and conversing god we pray that you bring them back next week maybe an awesome week lord of investigating of thinking of you meeting for those of us who are regularly here lord we pray that you would give us such grace grace lord to live for you with a new sense of confidence a new sense of clarity in your word we pray.